Why did the number of abortions increase in 2020? Welcome to Answers News for June 27th, 2022. I'm Roger Patterson, joined today by Dr. Kaya Kloster and Tim Chafee. We're going to be talking about that important question today as we talk about all these important topics on Answers News. And we've got a great studio audience with us here today. Why don't you guys clap and let everybody know you're here? <laughs> Glad to have you here in Legacy Hall at the Creation Museum, and it's a beautiful sunny day here as we're recording this episode, and we've got high temperatures, lots of lots of heat happening here in Kentucky. It's summertime, and we're enjoying that wonderful weather, and it's giving us lots of opportunity to enjoy the beautiful outdoors, God's creation. So thank you guys for visiting. Hope a, a lot of you viewing can find time to make it here to the Creation Museum. So let's get to that story we've got today. Uh, we have this article coming to us from the Seattle Times. U.S. abortions rise, one in five pregnancies terminated in 2020. Now this article is coming out here at, as we're all awaiting the Dobbs v. Jackson decision from the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, during the month of June, this is we've had the leak that came out and seen this a big spike in articles and people discussing this topic. We've had lots of articles we've been discussing here on Answers News. And here, the Seattle Times, obviously uh, not a friendly source as we would view it on the topic of abortion, but they're looking at data coming out of the Guttmacher Institute, which is affiliated with Planned Parenthood and giving us data looking at the number of abortions from 2017 to 2020, and the, the most recent data that we have. And they're charting a very pretty significant rise in the number of abortions that have happened during that period of time. And trying to understand some of the things that are happening. Uh, we've got the, the pandemic beginning there and around 2020 and how that's influencing things, a lot of the different circumstances uh, in, the, in the culture. And we really see some significant consequences as a result of all of these things. And as you guys read through this article, uh, what do you think was probably the most significant or the most important thing that stood out uh, to you as they tried to describe all of these different things that are happening? Uh, for me, I think what, it was a little bit startling. It, I guess maybe not surprising, but it's sad. But we had seen a steady decline, for the most part, in the number of abortions from the 1990s till really about 2019. You had seen it slowly decrease, and then it started to level off a little bit. But then from 2017 to the numbers that they gave to 2020, you're up about 70,000 abortions. And think about that, the 70,000 children whose lives were ended in the womb. Um, and they also, they said it included the... Uh, the abortion from the, the pills and everything, which that, a lot of times they don't, the numbers that they give don't include those. They're just ones where a woman will go into Planned Parenthood or another abortion mill and uh, do that. So um, it was interesting to, that the figure included that. Well, and actually, I think for the first time, it actually was higher than 50%. 54% of the abortions uh, were done using medication rather than going into clinics. And I think that's significant because even if the Supreme Court should overrule Roe versus Wade, which would be a, a, a great win for the pro-life movement, um, it still is going to be available by just something be delivered to your mailbox. And um, so I think it's not going to, you know, like they say you can't legislate morality, you know, we're going to still have the issue. Um, so I think more so we just want to, you know, 
continue to share the gospel and, and the value and the sanctity of human life and, and to love on the mothers that maybe are finding themselves in that position where they're struggling and needing to make a decision. Yeah, so as we think about uh, this, this point in history in our country, we've got to uh, recognize that uh, this question is likely going to be coming back to the states. Uh, we've covered lots of those stories here on Answers News. You can go back and look for some of those earlier programs. Different states are going to be adopting different standards, and how is that going to influence uh, what's, what's happening around the country? I think this is really a key moment for the church to recognize uh, the opportunity to really step in and care for women and, and men who are involved in these situations as well. We can't leave them out of these things. Uh, how we can look at families and really support families in what in many cases is a hardship. Okay? And uh, sometimes these are the result of sinful activities okay? uh, that aren't part of a marriage and uh, there's young people involved in these things. We can, we can be involved as the church and recognize these things. We can recognize the sinfulness of those activities, but it still led to the creation of someone who's made in the image of God there in that womb and find ways to care for them and love them. And we, we get assailed many times as just pro-birthers and we don't care about them. But is, is that really the case, Tim? It's not even close. I mean, you look at the number of people who are longing to adopt, the people who do adopt, and, you know, the people who are pro-life are right at the top of that list all the time. The people who are most charitable toward uh, organizations, the people who are needy and everything, caring for people who are already born are largely from Christian community. And so we, we hear a lot of very wrong arguments from our culture about, you know, pro-life people only care about the children in the womb. Why don't they care about the... Well, they do, but one thing, they make it so difficult to adopt, you know, tens of thousands of dollars just to adopt, and yet so many people are, are waiting to adopt. I know uh, my, my daughter and her husband have been waiting for years to try to adopt, and it's just as they've been saving up, and it just hasn't been uh, panning out for them, but um, we're, we're waiting. And yeah, so there's a lot of arguments that are just fallacious at, at the core. It's, uh, people who are pro-life, um, it's not just because they want to control a woman's body. It's because they, we believe that that child is a human being who is made in God's image and has a really limitless value because of that fact from the moment that uh, fertilization throughout uh, the rest of their life, which is going to go on for eternity. I think another alarming thing was um, that some of the states, Illinois, for example, is starting to allow for Medicaid funds to actually pay for the abortions. And in that time period from 2017 to 2020, uh, Illinois saw abortions increase by 25%. And so, um, you know, I think, like you said, as it goes out from a federal mandate to state-controlled, different states are going to handle it differently. And um, that's one aspect that's going to affect yeah. the rate. And they're using language like health care and, right. and medical advice, all these things. But really, we understand that the taking of the innocent life of these children is not health care in any sense. Right, it's, and, it's and it should be a right, like abortion rights. Yeah, abortion but, rights and all um, those and, things. And one thing you brought up, that, like Illinois, they're, they're also helping to pay for people from Missouri. So there were 6,500 people from Missouri who came over to have an abortion. Well, what happens if the Supreme Court does strike down uh, Roe v. Wade? It does go back to the state. So you might have one state that allows abortion, the state right now, next door does not. And so people are going to be, you've already had some states say, we're going to help pay for you to come over to do this. Um, or what happens with the mail? Like you were talking about, can, can they deliver to state, these pills to states that say you can't have abortion? There, there's going to be all sorts of other things that will come into play uh, if and when that would happen. 
Yeah, and we can we can be reminded again, hope and healing for those who have had abortions, been involved in those, is available in the gospel. Um, abortion is not the unforgivable sin. Right. There is hope in Christ, and we can, as the church, come around and love those people who have and, been involved. And we have an exhibit here at the Creation Museum all about that, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Uh, fearfully got, and wonderfully made. Fearfully and wonderfully made. We've got a beautiful exhibit that's here right now. That is just a, a temporary exhibit. We are... Uh, rapidly finishing up a, a permanent exhibit, which will be about twice the size, and we're going to include some more teaching. Uh, that's going to be opening up soon, and you who are here at the Creation Museum can, can go and actually see the construction of that, but um, yeah, we're uh, planning to open that up in October. All right, our next story takes us out of this world to the planet Mars. A new Mars study traces erosion history on the red planet in search for water. And the reason they're searching for water is because if we can find water on Mars, then Aliens. we're likely to find <laughs> alien life. <laughs> and that's the, that's the continued story as we uh, look for uh, life in space uh, with this evolutionary worldview. Evidence of water accelerating erosion might help with the search for life. So the, uh, the study here is trying to understand how erosion might have accelerated, and they're using the different uh, satellites that are moving around Mars and the rovers and information from those to look at differential erosion. So uh, erosion happens at differential rates. If you're inside water and you've got boulders that are tumbling along, they're going to smash those particles much faster if it's just wind blowing across the surface. That's just good uh, mechanical research, and we can appreciate that type of study. And, and there are features on Mars that certainly look they, like they were eroded away by water. We have an yeah. exhibit at the, at the Ark Encounter, uh, the flood geology exhibit, that shows four different images that they sure look like they were eroded by water. And so a lot of scientists will say there was a flood of biblical proportions on Mars, a planet that, as far as we know, has no liquid water on the surface, at least today. Uh, and what they mean is like one third of the planet was covered by water at that time. But those same scientists will not accept a global flood here on Earth, a planet that is 70% covered with water. We've got water all over the place. And uh, so again, that really kind of shows the bias there. But um, sorry, I interrupted you. About no, no. The <laughs> that's, that's a great point. And even if they do find all of these things, um, and we, we can show this erosion rate, it's not really going to give them all the evidence that they're hoping for to, to make all the points that they want to. Right. One of their goals was to understand when in geological time Mars may have been habitable. At what point in their million-year timescale was it possibly habitable? And so what they do is they look at you know the rates of accumulation, and then they can extrapolate back. And, and just the same problem that we have here on Earth, um, if you try to use that uniformitarian approach, um, you're going to have a calculation that's going to seem reasonable, but it's really barring any catastrophic event like a worldwide flood or whatever happened on Mars to cause those geological formations. So, um, so no, they're, they're going to come up with a number, um, but... And they might come up with a number, but it doesn't solve the issue. Just having water does not mean right. that you have life. It's just one of the many, many, many conditions that need to be met, and it doesn't come about by chance. All right, so if it's not on Mars, let's go looking for life on another planet like Venus. So we've seen some stories coming out of Venus and trying to find life on Venus. And here we have the heading, Missing Microbial Poop in Venus's Clouds Suggests the Planet Has No Life. Now, technically, microbes don't poop like we think of more complex animals, but uh, when we think of uh, the way microbes process the different chemical compounds that they eat, 
Uh, we talk about carbon fixation is the way most microbes process energy. So they're taking in carbon compounds and converting that into energy to use. But we know that there are some who can use alternate sources like sulfur. We go to the deep ocean vents and we have sulfur fixing bacteria that use sulfur. And so it's been suspected that there could be other life forms that are using sulfur in the clouds around Venus as this source. And so here, this group is looking at the, uh, the clouds around Venus and trying to model were these clouds formed by the products of this sulfur-fixing bacteria or some type of other life form? And is this the way these clouds got here? And, and running these models and simulations, and is that what they found to be true? Well, they said they've been studying it for the past two years, trying to explain the weird sulfur chemistry that they see in the clouds of Venus. And uh, at this point, they've concluded there's, they can't figure out any, anything they've seen, how that would relate to some sort of life going on there. So I guess Mars probably had water, so men are from Mars. That one works. We've got to find a different place for where women are from because there's none from <laughs> Venus. <so. laughs> you know, um, I think, too, that... They make a statement, we wanted life to be a potential explanation, but when we ran the models, it wasn't a viable solution. And so you see their bias. And in fact, they're honest about it. You know, that's what they hope to see. Um, but I also find it interesting from an evolutionary um, viewpoint, life ex- happened here by chance, by the conditions that were here. Um, and so it really doesn't mean that if it happened somewhere else out in the universe, that life would come about the same way. So even though they're looking for alien life forms, um, they're using microbes unknown here on this earth and their processes. And so it's really kind of counter, counterintuitive anyway. So the models that they ran wouldn't necessarily even fit their worldview. And this is a good reminder that this is the way science works. We develop models and hypotheses, and we test those models, and we try to see if they are proven true. And if they're not, then they're falsified. Then uh, we move on. We, we modify the models. And that's the same for those of us who have a biblical worldview as we're developing scientific models. Um, one of those models that's really fallen out of favor is the canopy model. So back in the late 50s, early 60s, um, biblical uh, scientists tried to develop this idea that there was a canopy of water around the earth, and that explained some of the giant life forms and high oxygen concentrations and no rain and lots of these things. And they, and they uh, got that from Genesis 1, where yeah. on day two, God separates the waters from the waters, mm-hmm. and they thought, oh, that must be like water above the atmosphere and yeah. water below. And yeah, so they tried to develop these scientific models, and um, I think of Dr. Larry Vardaman from ICR. He was kind of one of the key uh, developers of all these models, and as they ran the simulations and tried to model these things, through different computer programs, it kind of didn't solve the problems the way that they thought it would, just like these guys are admitting. And when we do those things, we want to make sure that we're holding the biblical text tightly. And in this case, that's one way to explain the text, but it's not necessarily the only way or the best way. Yeah, there's a problem with that. And there's the, pro- the major problem is... That if, when he separates the waters from the waters, which creates the expanse of the firmament, depending on your translation, a couple days later, it says God put the sun, moon, and stars in that expanse or in that firmament. So does that mean that water above must be way out beyond the stars and the sun and moon? Moon, rather than the, just the earth. Or they're inside the atmosphere, and that doesn't <laughs> that work. That would be a 
problem too. <laughs> that creates a problem. Maybe that's and, why it's so warm here. Yeah. <laughs> so the greenhouse effect with the canopy theory. And so it's just fallen out of favor. And we've got some articles on our website. You can read about those things. And there are still some creationists who, yeah. who hold on to it. Yeah. But even Dr. Vardaman says that he, Probably he likes it, but he recognizes there's a lot of problems. With so it. we've got to, we've got to cling to the text tightly and hold to our scientific models loosely and be willing to adjust those things. And I would throw in the caveat that um, if we as humans can't come up with a model that works, doesn't necessarily mean that something didn't happen because we know Absolutely. there's a supernatural God. But again, we don't want to get out and, or hold too tightly yeah. that we deny what Scripture says because we want our, our idea to yeah. be right. We've yeah. got to distinguish between those supernatural things and our natural models. That right. We may not figure out everything. God's a bit smarter than He's us. Pretty... He's infinitely smarter yeah. than us. <laughs> All right, coming out of this uh, recent Supreme Court term, the Supreme Court rules in favor of parents' right to school choice, a great day for religious liberty in America. So this is a case that comes out of the state of Maine, where a, uh, the school system there uh, is very rural, especially in the northern part, and it's not uh, a system where they could have public school access in every area. So the state developed basically a voucher system where you could go to a private school and then the, the funds would be given to support that schooling choice. The parents choice. Yeah, for the, the parents could choose that, that school system. And then the, the quandary that came up was a lot of these were private schools that were religiously based and the state said no. You can go any, to any secular school, but you can't go to a religious-based school. And so several parents sued over that distinction. And now this has come all the way to the Supreme Court. And uh, what I would say, a favorable ruling has been handed down here on a 6-3 to three ruling in this Carson v. Macon case. And they've basically said... No, you can't discriminate based on just the religious test alone. So if you're going to have a system that says you can choose a school, you just can't have a religious school, that's unconstitutional. Right. I mean, remember, the, the parents of these kids are still paying their taxes and everything, and the parents are choosing. Nobody is forcing anybody to go to that religious school, although, to be fair, all schools are religious in nature. That's why I said secular. Right. <laughs> There's because always they, a religious They are teaching a religion. There's fact, a worldview there oftentimes. in mind, yeah. Um, so, yeah, this is, I think it's a, a win. You have, um, you should, parents should have freedom to, of where to send their children to school. And if they're paying taxes, then why not have some of that money go to the, the school of their choice rather than being forced to uh, fund something that they would completely disagree with? Um, but it, it reminds me of what happened when we were building the Ark Encounter. There was a, uh, a, a tourism tax that was supposed to be neutral. That any, tax incentive. Yeah, tax incentive. Yeah. Anybody that anybody could apply for it if you're building a tourist attraction here in the state, which, of course, the Ark Encounter is a huge tourist attraction. And we were told, yes, you can have that, and you qualify for it. And then once we started building, then they... Uh, kind of pulled back on that, and uh, it had to go through the court system, and, and it, the court determined that, no, it's, it's neutral, therefore, even if they're religious in nature, even if they are in their statement of faith that says this, you have to allow for it. And, and so people would spin that and say, oh, the taxpayers are paying for it. No, not a single tax dollar went to build the ark. It was only people who had visited the ark that part of the sales tax would be refunded at the end of that first year, uh, and then in successive years. So. Yeah, Chief Justice John Roberts um, kind of clarifies that. A neutral benefit program that gives public funds to religious organizations through independent choices, 
of the recipients doesn't violate the Constitution's Establishment Clause. So um, the people that choose to come here are coming of their own free choice. Right. The parents that sent their kids to those religious schools were choosing, so it wasn't a forced issue. And Justice Sotomayor kind of said almost the opposite. Today, the, the court leads us to a place where separation of church and state becomes a constitutional violation. There was no, there, no that's spin. It's not at all what happened here. Yeah. Now, we have to be very wise here because once we start taking federal money as an organization, any organization, there are strings attached to those things. And we know many religious schools uh, choose not to take those federal funds because then you have an overseer saying what you have to do and and different things that you have to follow. So there's wisdom in those things. And and remember that even if it's a Christian school, that that means it's also open up for other religions. So don't be hypocritical and saying, well, I demand that I get to, but not that maybe a Jewish school or some other religious school. um, So just keep that in mind in, in a nation that does have freedom of religion. All right, our next one in a similar theme here. Minister claims Bible must give way to same-sex marriage. And we have here a minister in the Church of Scotland, Reverend Scott Rennie, who is an open homosexual. And this is basically a debate within the Church of Scotland as they're deciding whether they should be openly allowing same-sex marriages to be performed and how that's going to function within the church. Uh, This this gentleman is claiming that uh, we need to not have the Bible be the final word when it comes to things like sexual ethics because man's reasoning and our philosophies and understanding of psychology has changed over time. And we know much more today than those backwater Bronze Age goat herders did back then. And all I have to say is... Heresy. Heresy flag. (laughs) Heresy flag. We've got to throw the heresy flag on this one. Right. Is the Bible inspired by God or not? And uh, if it is, which it is, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, uh, then uh, literally God breathed. We do not know more than God, and his standard has not changed on that. And yet what we see are so many people wanting to uh, kowtow to the culture, whatever culture says, you know, whatever's popular at this time, whatever, you know, culture says we should be doing, people are bowing to that. And of course, uh, an individual who is openly homosexual is going to somehow figure out a way to say that that's going to be okay. And if that means we have, I guess in, in, to one degree, at least this person is acknowledging the Bible is against that. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot right. of times what we're seeing in our yeah. culture is right. people are trying to spin it and say, no, no, the Bible's fine with this. And uh, so this person is at least acknowledging the Bible is against it. We just have to ignore what the Bible says. But there is another uh, minister here, um, Andrew McGowan, who stood firm on this and several quotes from him in the article that um, are commendable. Yeah, you know, the, for a minister to say the Bible is not always the authority that people must follow, you know, I know the culture is slipping, but it's it's alarming too at, at how much is slipping into the churches, and so just a just a wake up call and. And it's not just on this issue. We see that, in fact, we've been warning about this for a long time as a ministry. That's one of the things that we have uh, constantly talked about, where if you open up that door, you know, even for the first book of uh, the first uh, book of the Bible, the first chapter, if you're allowing for the millions of years, you're allowing some outside idea to reinterpret the text. And when does that stop? Once you start doing that. And we see for a lot of people, it doesn't stop. It continues and people will continue to add outside influences and place that as their authority over scripture. And so uh, it's, it's so important to take a stand on God's word from the very beginning to the very end. Yeah, Rennie says here, I'm not suggesting we should just throw away the scriptures and just conform to anything. 
people's understanding of human sexuality has developed and we've grown better. We know more. And so we read the scriptures in that light. And to me, that just shows a very low view of God's word and a very high view of man's word. And we need to, we need to be aware of those things. Tim, you've got a book over there, uh, The New Answers, book three. Uh, so we've got a lot of great resources like that. Uh, in there, uh, there's a chapter that Ken and I wrote that deals with uh, should Christians be teaching creation in the public schools related to the last article we talked about? There are other things in there about why we can trust the Bible from the very first verse, why it's our authority. And, and real quickly on that last point you brought up, a lot of times we're accused of advocating that, that all schools should be teaching creation. And that has never been our position. Yeah. Uh, because we don't want, uh, you know, maybe a, a secular mm-hmm. biologist or somebody teaching the the creationist view because they probably don't understand it real well or at least not accurately or they're going to lampoon it or something like that. When I, when I believed evolution, when I was teaching in the science classrooms and I thought evolution was the right way, if you would have told me to teach the biblical viewpoint, I would have just mocked it and belittled it and taught the evolutionist view. Right, so that's never been yeah, our that position, would, yeah, that would but be we're accused of that a lot. So speaking of um, a high view of man, or of woman in this case. Yes. Uh, All right. Coming out of India, what is sologamy? Why an Indian woman who married herself is dividing social media? So you may have heard of polygamy, where there are multiple spouses involved, or monogamy, where you just choose to live as a single person. Uh, This lady has decided to live as a sologamist, so she is choosing to marry herself. And as a Hindu, she wanted to do this inside of a temple and go through this whole process. And basically, she outlines the idea of wanting to have the bride experience and the dress and all the pomp and the circumstance of having the wedding experience without having to have that pesky groom, (laughs) because we know how those grooms can be. (laughs) My life is not going to change after this marriage, and that's why I've always wanted to become a bride and not a wife. Over and over and over again, she just talked about how much she loves herself and that even through this process, she might even learn to love herself even more. And I'm reminded of, you know, in 2 Timothy 3, 2, Paul talked about how, you know, in the last days, people, people will become lovers of themselves and, and all sorts of other things that follow from that. Uh, Jesus talked about how we should take up, we should deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow him. The, the, what we're commanded to do in scripture is not to love ourselves. Jesus said to, to love others as you love yourself. In other words, you already do love yourself. You already that's why, love yourself. That's why enough. you feed yeah. yourself. That's why you yeah. take care of yourself. And yeah, there are people who are struggling with different mental issues who, you know, maybe you could say are self-hate or whatever, yeah. however you want to classify that. There are certain situations, but ultimately we are very prideful, very, very selfish people. And the goal is to lay that down and to uh, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And we see that here in this social media post from this uh, Brazilian star who is still wearing a wedding ring even after she was uh, divorced. And it's because it's a reminder for her to love herself. And I think you've got some other scriptures there that point us in. in well, and actually truth. Tim points it out, most of them. But in John fifteen thirteen, it also says, you know, there's no greater love than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. So we're not, we're really not supposed to just look out for ourselves, but to sacrifice ourselves for others. Which and, is something she said in there all about it for herself. And, right. Yeah. And I think too, um, a couple other mentions of media, like um, Sex in the City, and uh, there was another show where they had examples of this. 20 in, years ago. Yeah, yeah, and so it's just, 
again, an example of how media has so much power and so much influence in shaping what's acceptable in our culture. And it's just another attack on the biblical institution of marriage. Yeah. We see that over and over again. This and can't be a marriage because marriage is defined by God as one man and one woman. And yeah. this one is missing one of those two ingredients. Yeah. And that's a, supposed to be a pointer as we read all through the New Testament of Christ and the church as an example of that, the man and the woman coming together in that union, pointing us to unity of God, all of those different pictures that we see, we're going to be missing in these things. And to produce godly offspring. Yes, absolutely. Out of Malachi too. Mm-hmm. All right. One more story. I think we can get through this one. Um, are we born with a moral compass? So here a group of researchers in Japan is using eight month old infants and they're trying to see if evolution has created in them a moral compass. And to try and discern this, they've developed this test where they basically use a screen to have one geometric object hurt somehow. I suppose they're bashing these images into one another, uh, another object. And then by using uh, a gazing technique, the infants stare at this object and I suppose they're hating this object and it they make it disappear. So they've trained them how to make objects disappear so by staring at, at the them. aggressive object at longer. At the aggressive object, like. and it disappears. And this proves that doing these punishment things to these objects that did the hurtful action, that evolution a moral produced compass. a moral compass in humans, right? Yeah. That's how and it yet, works. I know my littles, and I've seen so many others, you know, if there's just like a ceiling fan going around, you know, and I don't know that ceiling fans are terribly evil, so I, I think they just have a... An Only a, when they malfunction when it's really hot. Then they, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just so possible that they're just attracted by the animation on the screen, and uh, they're focused on it and the movement, so I think it's hard to sort of uh, work in some of the logic and rationale that they try to apply to it. Well, and even the, let's say that the test that they were doing was, was accurate, that the, the children did recognize that. Are we born with a moral compass? The Bible tells us that we all, that God has given us a conscience, you know, and we do know innately right from wrong. And yeah, we can sear that conscience. We can ignore it and we, we can try to get away from those things, but we do have a conscience from the Lord. The other thing to keep in mind is that um, we are sinners by nature as well. Yeah. You know, once Adam and Eve sinned, it's not like they were suddenly making perfect kids. I mean, we, uh, we, we do have a sinful tendency all the time. How so. many of you had to taught your, teach your children how to lie <laughs> or deceive or to steal? Yeah. No, they, 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 they came by that, that naturally. Yeah. So, uh, so even if they were, the test was, was all right, there are still other factors that have to come into play that they're not accounting for. Yeah. So we look back to the Bible and we can get a much clearer answer. And that's a reminder that in Adam we've all sinned and we all need to be looking to Christ for that hope, repentance, and trust in Christ for salvation. All right, so that's our last story, but we want to remind you guys we've got lots of great uh, resources for you. Uh, Here at the Creation Museum and down at the Ark Encounter, we do high school labs where we teach students who come in. I get to teach the uh, chemistry and physics labs. We do these for high school students. We've got environmental science labs and forensics and biology as well. Great resources for you. We'd love for you to check those out and see how you can take advantage of those. As well as our Explore Days, we have those things coming up through uh, the summer. Uh, We've got camps coming up here. Probably a little late to get in on those right now, but we've got summer camps and then we do our Explore Days 
for uh, the older kids and juniors all through the year. Great opportunity to come in and learn from our scientists and really learn a godly view of science and understand how the world works, uh, how the Creator has designed all these things. Hope you can find a way to take advantage of those. And until we see you next time, we hope you have a blessed day. Thanks for coming.